This episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 13th of July 2022 at home in Wicklow and it is an episode about two movies largely and Amour Fou which is the French for crazy love basically. The two films I'm going to discuss are from 1986, Betty Blue, the French movie, which in France is known as 37.2 degrees in the morning. And from 1958, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, both of which came across my my consciousness um, this week uh, over a, a couple of days. And I found myself wondering why these two movies and Betty Blue came to me out of the blue uh, while I was doing a particular kind of work and I was trying to work out the connective tissue and I came to a pretty pretty daft conclusion which I'll share with you uh, which I'll share with you in the episode uh, as you continue to listen so that is what's coming up uh movies crazy love obsession uh warped minds and probably an argument for engaging the critical brain and really resisting broad brushstroke interpretations of movies and resisting in particular condemnatory criticism uh, such as the type that seems very prevalent at the moment across woke culture and the culture wars and identity politics and all of that so there you go that is what's coming up I really hope you enjoy what you hear and if you don't just don't tell anybody about it just keep it keep it to yourselves okay all right I'll see you around the corner cheers Gonna change my mind Leaving the dream behind Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. Welcome. How are you today? How's it going? Are you hot and sweaty? <laughs> is that a bit rude? Is that a bit inappropriate? The sun, the sun has been shining of late of late and I, I was tempted to launch into a Hamlet speech there for a millisecond and I just thought how unbearable that would be maybe some other time I can find an excuse I can contrive an excuse to shoehorn in some Hamlet Hamlet me be uh yeah the sun has been shining we finally have been enjoying a little bit of a little bit of summer weather how lovely and i'm finally enjoying a spell of renewed good health after after about two months i guess we um we had a bit of an old bit of an old shindig an old gathering here at hashtag blessed at the weekend and um I had great plans. <laughs> I had I had great great plans 
to uh, to sing a song for my wife because it was a sort of a, a belated a belated birthday celebration for a significant birthday that we observed during lockdown last year. She was co-celebrating with a friend. Uh, hi Anne-Marie, if you're listening. Hi Mark, because I know you are listening. Fair play to you. Uh, I'm going to return to Anne-Marie and Mark uh, later, later in the in the tell. But um, yeah, I had great intentions to uh, commandeer the microphone at this gathering and sing a soppy love song to my wife. But uh, I wasn't feeling well enough. <laughs> So I had to feebly and pathetically remain off stage and abandon my uh, my romantic vision. Oh well, another time perhaps, another time. Not to worry. A good time was had by 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 many, <laughs> if not all. Uh, so that was nice. That was nice. But I'm telling you, it feels great to be feeling well again. Touch wood. I'll just tap myself on the head. Um. Yeah, the uh, the energy's back. The body seems to have just settled into something. And I, I mean, this is recent. This is only in the last two or three days. So maybe I'm jinxing myself. But I believe I was enduring some, just some rotten post-COVID symptoms in bizarre places. Anyway, enough of all that. Enough of all that. How how boring to be whinging about COVID symptoms. Uh, but look, it, it does appear to be on the rise again. Uh, I have been using the word rampant. COVID is rampant again. Lots of people are going down and it's crap. It's just so bloody frustrating. Um, yeah. It, and, and look, it's a... It's something people are talking about. I'm seeing it in, uh, you know, in social media. I noticed uh, Blind Boy, whose podcast I rate very highly. I noticed he's just done a uh, his latest episode. Episode of his own podcast is is about post COVID stress or anxiety. I can't remember how he phrased it, but he's certainly having a good look at it i haven't listened to it yet myself but i mean he's he's a guy who's very tuned into mental health and the larger patterns of what's going on in society and how they may impact one's mental stability and mental resilience he's he's really good on that stuff um and always always worth listening to so um i'm not alone i'm not alone in having a in having a whinge in this area uh and Certainly, that was one of the the reasons I started this podcast uh, just over a year ago. I thought we're entering a time of um, of sort of re re what reframing and re understanding where we are in the world after a couple of years of pretty much nonstop stress, social compromise, anxiety, unwellness. And and grief, real grief for for many people, um, and grief of of maybe of, of lesser intensity for for many others of us, uh, and maybe a form of grief that we don't really articulate, like the the loss of natural social interaction, and it, and it depends. I mean, I know um, on on some level, uh, and 
on a significant level, I'm quite comfortable in my own company. Uh, otherwise, I, I probably couldn't do something like this. I'm quite happy to, to noodle away on my my projects and my creative endeavors. And a lot of that is solo time. And I enjoy being locked away in a room. I enjoy the isolation. And so there was an aspect of lockdown conditions that certainly fit quite well with my own natural inclinations and I know at least one of my aunts expressed that she felt that way about it too Uh, but that is not to disregard um, the other side of it and the cost and the social cost and I think a lot of people are learning learning how to learning how to behave again and learning how to be in company again Um, And there's still that funny dance a lot of us do when we meet each other in person of what are we doing? Are we hugging? Are we kissing? Are we fist bumping? Are we side hip bumping like a little disco boogie? Uh, Are we not touching at all? Are we keeping distance? Um, And I experienced all of those options at our little gathering on uh, at the weekend. So it's... um, it's an ongoing thing, an ongoing negotiation. And typically, and typically in Ireland, like we generally trivialize it and make jokes about it because that's, that's a very comfortable place for us to go. But there, I think there are going to be continuing after effects um, emotionally, psychologically. Um, and emotional and psychological stuff can impact our, our physical well-being as well um and so yeah that was that was a point i was going to make there was that when i started the podcast i was thinking i want to put something out there that is positive i want to have something that people can listen to once a week if they're that keen or just select an old episode or whatever and go that was something that elevated my mood that was something that amused me diverted me gave me a little lift um, and I'd like to think that I've remained consistent in in pitching to that area, uh, even though I do often uh, go into areas of discussion that can be quite serious and sometimes even confronting. Uh, witness the last two episodes, the the interview with Ashleen Cregan, uh, um, for which I've had quite a bit of really nice feedback actually from people they seem to really respond well to the uh, the conversation I had with Ashleen and how we got into her story which uh, is one of surviving abuse and trauma and all of that and of course don't forget Ashleen is out there promoting her fantastic book I Am Someone and I do I do recommend you go and Give that a read if you can get your hands on it. It's out there in bookshops and libraries, uh, libraries, wherever you are. Um, And can be got online, of course, if it's not physically gettable uh, in your vicinity. Anyway, there you go. So I've been doing some demolition. (laughs) It's not a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. I haven't been taking a wrecking ball to things. Um, No, but I've been swinging hammers and uh, whacking things and using drills and 
kangos and things like that. I've been ripping out ceilings and knocking down walls. This uh, this is a bit of summer work, summer work that has come my way and it has been most welcome indeed. Always good to get into something like that, get into something very physical. Because let's not forget, the physical is often the pathway to mindfulness. The physical is often the pathway to take us out of our heads and into our bodies and to follow our senses that can be the pathway to mindfulness what am i feeling what am i holding what can i hear what can i smell what can i taste what's that part of my body doing what's this part of my body doing where am i what can i feel inside myself let's just be here now it's it's a nice objective it's a nice pursuit and it's not something we can do 24 hours a day um but when we can achieve it it brings a quality of presence that i think is desirable and beneficial anyway the other day the other day i was taking down it's not finished yet but i was taking down a red brick chimney brick by brick breaking through mortar loosening the bricks taking out the bricks one by one saving what bricks could be saved getting rid of the bits that couldn't be and i was doing that methodically on a scaffolding inside an old cottage and the film betty blue came into my head do you remember that film betty blue French film from 1986 the French don't know it as Betty Blue they know it as 37.2 degrees in the morning which would be and I, I don't know how to say degrees or how that's expressed in French so it might be something like 37.2 le matin Ah ouais, j'aime beaucoup ton de le matin. Beatrice Dals, elle est extraordinaire, n'est-ce pas? Maybe, maybe that's how they talk about the uh, rather, rather what? Pornographic? Was it pornographic? Is it pornographic? I don't know. I do remember, and, and listen, I have no idea why when I was taking down a chimney demolishing a chimney brick by brick that film of all films should come in my head but it did i was like why why is this movie coming in my head when i'm doing this i don't remember any chimneys in betty blue i don't remember any demolition in betty blue manual labor there's painting there's painting beach houses in betty blue i remembered that um so i felt compelled I felt compelled to rewatch Betty Blue, so I did. Now, before I rewatched it, let me just clarify. Betty Blue and seeing Betty Blue when I did. Now, let me see. It came out in 86, so I was 12. I didn't watch it when I was 12. That would have been inappropriate. I think I was more like 18 or 19, that sort of age. And it did have a massive impact on me. And I remember 
just watching the opening moments of the movie, which is fundamentally uh, an extended lovemaking scene between the two leads, uh, Beatrice Dahl and Jean-Hugues Anglade. Now, Jean-Hugues Anglade has been a fixture throughout French movies and prominent French movies uh, throughout his career. Uh, I think at the time of Betty Blue, he was 30 or 31. Um, and Beatrice Dahl, it was her sort of breakout role. Uh, she was only around 21 or 22 when she made it. And it's probably it's probably the high point of her career, even though she's continued to make movies. Um, but it was so sexually explicit and so sexually frank that I remember sitting up and taking notice and going oh this is yeah this is like my feeling was we're not in Hollywood anymore this is a very adult movie uh and whatever about the titillation um or the the voyeuristic pleasure of watching uh, these two French bodies, these young French bodies in the sex act. And certainly, I don't think it's any, I don't think it's a coincidence that the movie starts with that because there's a sexual obsession or a sexual magnetism um, and a sexual passion that is very much a driving force of the narrative. Um, and certainly Beatrice Dahl's innate sexuality or the sexuality that was captured by the, by the director whose name, uh, I think Jean-Jacques Beninix, I can't, I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. Um, and it was, you know, if you, if you read criticism and I mean film criticism. I mean of the movie, you know, reviews of the movie at the time, um, and and subsequently, I think the movie is regarded as being of a of a of a group of French movies that were in, you know visually very striking and very beautiful to look at, but maybe lacked uh, lacked substance. That they were a little bit empty, a little bit vacuous, uh, and certainly movies from the great French pop stylist Luc Besson fell into that category as well particularly something like the big blue or as they call it in France la grande bleue I don't even know if they do call it la grande bleue because it was a very international success the big blue about the the free divers um and I remember that was a that was a favorite uh of mine and friends of mine in the early 90s but this uh yeah Betty Blue came before that and it does have some striking visuals in it and yet ultimately it is a movie uh it's a movie of what they call amour fou crazy love now amour fou i guess is a it's a genre of its own it's 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 love gone wrong it's love driven by by mania or love derailed by obsession but it's 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 not slow burn it's like it's it's high octane obsession now 
Beatrice Dahl's character, Betty Blue, sort of so, so, so memorably fixed in the, the movie poster, uh, which is a beautifully, uh, a, a beautiful sort of blue, pre- predominantly blue poster with her at the center of it, uh, looking wistfully into the distance with a huge, luscious sort of pout on her face. And it fades to sort of, depending on the poster, it fades to, to yellow underneath. And my memory of the movie was it was predominantly set at the beach. Now, I watched it just the other night. and I watched the director's cut, which is three hours long. And I think the the beach sequences are finished by about 30 or 35 minutes into the movie. And I was like, is that it? Was that, is that, is that the, the is that all there was of the beach? Um, because basically the Jean Hughes on Glad character was like the, the caretaker handyman at the beach who worked for this obnoxiously <laughs> repellent slob of a sleazy owner um, who, you know, came uh you know comes to sort of harass uh the young glad character and then is just you know staring lasciviously at at uh at betty um and he's just he's just gross and this is out that you know and what it, what that does is the introduction of that character it forces one of the main tensions in the story which is that the young glad character whose name bizarrely is Zorg, that's Z O R G. The Anglad character, he just kind of wants an easy life. He just wants to sort of, you know, have his beers, you know, live by the beach, do a bit of work, and and then like he you know finds this extraordinary, you know, this extraordinary sex pot, uh, in 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 the body of Beatrice Dahl, and he's utterly smitten. Now, of course, you can argue. That it's all about the sex. It's all about the objectification of Betty and and certainly the objectification of Beatrice Dahl, who you know, fe- you know many nude shots uh, and explicit shots of her featured throughout the movie. Although that said, Jean Hughes Anglade parades through the movie fully naked, full frontal, many many times. But again, it's that very frank French camera looking at it. Um, it's just so casual, which leads me to sort of argue, yeah, Grant, they're they're having sex, whatever, they're nude again, whatever, and it's not particularly prurient. Again, apart from that opening sequence, where the camera is just very, very slowly, slowly, slowly zooming in on them in the middle of their lovemaking. And then we get the young glad characters, Zorg's voiceover saying, I'd, I'd only met Betty a week ago. Um, but the landlord, the boss, his introduction forces the dynamics of the couple to the fore. Because as I was saying, Zorg just wants an easy life. Let me be here with my girl. I'll do my bit of maintenance, my bit of painting. Uh, and he's not naturally fiery. He's not someone who's inclined to to fight back. He lets the you know the his boss be incredibly presumptuous and arrogant and patronizing. But Betty doesn't roll that way, and she is impulsive. She's f- explosive. Uh, 
and she is utterly unafraid to be confrontational and that side of her personality becomes more and more prominent as the the movie goes on and as the story unfolds and that's the foo that's the madness uh that's the craziness um and it intensifies as the story goes on now the the couple leave the beach now i know now i can look back and go i think the reason that the beach scenes loomed so large in my mind was probably because of the impact of the sex scenes on my whatever 17 18 19 year old brain um and i would have been just compelled and utterly seduced by what was put in front of me and so my memory was like oh yeah betty blue it's just that amazing that that you know movie of you know crazy passionate love on the beach uh but no, as I found out when I rewatched it the other night, there's another two and a half hours. Now, I had remembered how the movie ends. And again, this is 1986, so I'm going to be spoiling this. Um, but there's a whole sequence that takes place in Paris where Betty catches up with a, an old friend of hers who runs an unsuccessful hotel. But then her friend meets a very successful restaurateur who has money and it becomes like the four of them together and they're great kind of drinking uh, pals and there's there's a great natural chemistry between the four of them um, but you know uh, they, they, their their situation gets derailed by another impulsive outburst by Betty who takes offence to a snotty customer who she stabs with a fork and so it's you know everything's put under pressure again now part of the part of the plot is also that the young glad character is a writer and he's written a novel that betty discovers in the form of um about 20 notebooks handwritten notebooks while she's having a tantrum and throwing everything out of their beach hut she's like what's this and she's like oh are these all in sequence is this something and he's like oh yeah that's something i've written and she reads it with a childlike obsession and again we're talking and again one of the complaints about Betty Blue is how Beatrice Dahl is portrayed how Betty is portrayed as this sort of um, you know a childlike sex kitten who is completely um, driven by her her whims her, her caprices and are we going, you know, I suppose the argument is she's not then a fully fleshed out character. She's reduced to, you know, to sex and to emotion. Um, and then the film can be accused of a certain misogynistic reading. Now, look, I don't know. I don't know. It's... Can we... I mean, I, I, I don't come away from that movie, which I think it's not a perfect movie by any means. And certainly the director's cut is <laughs> maybe way longer than it needs to be. And there's probably also an over simplistic view of mental unwellness, because ultimately that's where the story goes, is that uh, Betty having 
thought she was pregnant and then found out that she wasn't pregnant she goes into a state of deep depression and into uh, rages of self-harm and towards the end of the movie when Zorg visits visits her in the local hospital and by this stage they've moved down to the south of France the the white-coated, bespectacled doctor is explaining to Zorg that, okay, I just have to tell you that Betty is in shock. Do you know what that means? She is totally insane. And I mean, <laughs> I was watching going, really? That's a big jump. You know, she'll never be sane again. Um, and they're presenting it with enormous seriousness. Like this is one of the worst mental health diagnoses that could ever be um, handed over to somebody. Um, now, Betty has, by that stage of the movie, enacted um, an act of terrible self-harm um, and is basically in a catatonic state because of sedation in the hospital bed. And ultimately, Zorg decides to... And, and largely informed by the, the the diagnosis of the doctor, um, he decides that the only way to say goodbye to Betty is to to end her life by smothering her with a pillow. And then the final scene of the movie is Zorg sitting in his house writing his new novel. Now, you hear that and you go, "Oh my goodness, what the hell?" Now, the, 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 the movie's based on a book, so maybe we shouldn't blame the movie and, and blame the guy who wrote the book. Um, so there's something very unsatisfying about that sort of denouement and how the, 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 the narrative is brought to a conclusion um, that the only way to handle this chaotic, disturbed highly hypersexualized woman um who can't find a way back to an even keel after losing a pregnancy um is for her boyfriend is it for either the hospital to sedate her into catatonia and you know decide that she's you know completely bananas insane and uncurable incurable and then the boyfriend goes well there's only one thing for it i'll smother her that is problematic. I mean, there's there's no other way to look at that. That's like, are you serious, lads? Um, and then the boyfriend <laughs> finishes in that very you know casually you know French way, smoking his cigarette and uh, writing the next chapter of his novel. Um, it's 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 really quite bizarre. But there's a lot of nice stuff in the middle. Uh, there's a quirky shopkeeper in the town where they they fetch up um, who's like a a less antic Danny Kay and he's sort of quite tightly wound and slightly effeminate but he has this sex starved wife who throws herself at the Zorg character in one of the more ridiculous scenes in the movie uh, there's a res- an attempted rescue scene of their that couple's son who's locked himself in the bathroom and is filling the bath with bath toys, a little bit like Paddington um, in, in, in the Paddington movies of recent years. And Zorg gets in through the outside 
you know, upstairs window and opens the door and the father comes in and grabs the son and hangs him on a hook by the back of his dungarees in the bathroom, suspended there on the wall. The son's just sort of nonplussed. Little things like that are kind of funny. Um, they're, they're you know, visually funny. And there's lots of lovely visuals and the colour palette is really beautiful at places. A beautiful old yellow Mercedes features prominently in that latter part of the movie. Um, and yeah, and Jean Hughes on Glad and Beatrice Dahl, there is a real chemistry. The director claims that they didn't even, you know, at, at a certain point, maybe they weren't even sure they were in a movie anymore because their their chemistry was so intense. Um, but it is well acted and it, I was I was happy to revisit it, and I'm not sure if I'll if I, I feel a need to 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 watch it again, but there there are some there are some funny tonal shifts in it. There's a, there's a lot of comedy in it, uh, and maybe the more dramatic stuff is less well handled. And certainly the end is, um, yeah, it, it, I found myself recoiling from the screen a bit, going, oh my god, I can't, I, I didn't remember how bad like how badly this was written and how clunky and overly simplistic um and maybe a a throwback to certain ideas around women and hysteria and women's hormones and you know emotional you know women being emotionally unhinged um but quite simply oh but that's something that you know that that's something that can't be that can't be addressed that's it's just their nature um and of course that's incredibly patronizing reductive simplistic uh, and fundamentally stupid uh, uninformed moronic um it's and is that does all of that feed into then a, a misogyny that is really more a definition of of laziness more a definition of uh, a lack of interest and it, certainly in terms of the the writer of the the, the book and then the, the script adaptation is there a lack of interest in going home let's let's understand this with a certain with a bit more complexity and betty's descent into i mean i don't want to say madness because I, I don't i don't view it that way um i mean she's an incredibly impulsive character and i feel sure i feel like i i knew i knew women like that and i knew guys like that and i think when i find myself resisting the out and out uh misogynistic analysis i i often find myself coming back to the point i mean there's there's two things to think about here one is it's one story when i watch that movie when I watch Betty Blue, and let's go back, and I watched it when I was you know, obviously a lot younger as well, I didn't come away from that movie going, wow, all, all let's, let's, let's not even say all women, all French women are crazy about sex, uh, and they're also crazy. Um, and they self-harm when things don't go their way in life, when life events go against them. They're really dangerously volatile. Um and alongside them french men love the sex and are happy to go on the journey the up and down unpredictable journey of madness but they're sort of you know meek and ineffectual and oh well there was nothing i could do i am but i truly love her 
Um, now, look, that said, I mean, Zorg and Betty, like, they're very dedicated to each other. Now, but I, but I didn't come away from that movie as an 18-year-old and now 30 years later as a 48-year-old going, all women are nuts. See, that's when I kind of resist the misogynistic, you know, just this kind of large brush stroke of, oh, well, it's it's fundamentally misogynistic. I mean, I don't think that's true for this movie. I think Betty is actually an incredibly strong character and takes control of Zorg's life and gets his, uh, you know, types up his 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 manuscript and sends it out to publishers and she's the one who's pursuing his dream and being aggressive and demonstrating faith and demonstrating being proactive and you know sticking up for them and standing up for herself um and being unafraid to express her disappointment or her frustration or her rage. They're all positive things. Um, now, when it goes to excess, that's, of course, what makes brings in the specificity of her character. And I go, oh, wow, yeah, that's her character. And I don't know. I mean, you go and watch it for yourself and see what you think. Um, either the original release. I mean, the, direct, the director's cut is an extra hour. There's an extra hour of stuff in there. Um, and I, I think largely it's the extra hour is towards the sort of middle and latter part of the movie and it sort of fleshes out the the relationship it fleshes out uh, Betty's journey towards the uh, towards the end um, but yeah but listen what it got me thinking about then was okay so is it a story about obsession like she's obsessed with his success. She's obsessed with him becoming a successful writer. He's not obsessive. Although I think rewatching it, it's clear that the the sexual potency of the relationship is certainly a huge thing for him and his character. And even when he's expressing his love and his affection, he he, he very often fondles uh, her breasts while he's expressing his love it's 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 but i mean they're young <laughs> I, I, it, I mean doesn't that change would they still be doing that 10 20 years later i don't know i don't know but that is a it, it's certainly i think as i watched i felt okay well that's that's a huge part of of the glue in in the relationship um and I'm going to return. I'm going to return to this idea. Okay. Now, so Betty Blue just popped in my head while I was taking down that chimney. Now, a friend came to visit yesterday. Hi, Anne-Marie again. Hello, Mark, again, if you're listening. And Anne-Marie was sitting down having a cup of tea with us. And she said, you know, myself and Mark were watching a movie the other night. And, ah, Jesus, it was one of those classics. And, oh, God, it was terrible. <laughs> And I was immediately, I was immediately intrigued. I was like, oh, what, what, uh, go on. Oh, I can't remember the name, but what was it? Oh, I'm just going, oh, I can't remember anything about it. It was that bad. It was so, so shit. <laughs> and I was like, tell me anything you remember about it. And she said, ah, oh, I don't know. It had like oh, towers. And I said, was it vertigo? She said, yeah, it was vertigo. <laughs> 
And she said, oh, you're probably going to tell me it's, it's a great film. And I said, yeah, it is. <laughs> I said, ah, no, she was, she was being totally dismissive. And she's going, that nah, just didn't make any sense. And I was going, yeah, it's, it can be quite a confusing movie, all right. And um, it certainly, uh, a lot of critics responded to it uh, that way when it first came out in, in 1958. But, um, but Vertigo, I thought, oh, okay. Is, is Vertigo, would, would Vertigo be not a bad, um, not a bad double bill, a double feature with Betty Blue? Um, is Vertigo also uh, an iteration of Amour Fou, crazy love, uh, mad love, love caught in the snare of madness, love, a love of entanglement, a love of unstoppable but doomed attraction and love a love which is about what thwarted agency love that is about an attempt to control uh now when I was speaking to Anne-Marie, one of the first things I said, well, Hitchcock was a pretty dark character and his interests and obsessions were quite dark. And he was certainly, he, a lot of his narratives and a lot of his interests and a lot of his storytelling is caught up in the, the psychosexual and very twisted dynamics between men and women and love and obsession and voyeurism and objectification um and hitchcock loved his blondes uh grace kelly one of the original hitchcock girls one of the original hitchcock heroines um certainly i and you know in in his american movies because of course he had a long uh, and a very established film career where he truly cut his teeth and found his form uh, in England before making the the move across to to Hollywood, um, something like twenty four movies. Um, he had Grace Kelly. He later had Tippi Hedren, um, and the blonde of choice in Vertigo is Kim Novak, uh, and Kim Novak was an actress that certainly got my attention. Um, I think from want to say wasn't she in is she in pal joey and is she also in the man with the golden arm um very different movies pal joey uh quite a light musical and man with the golden arm quite a dark edgy movie about a recovering heroin addict who is a, a jazz drummer Machine, isn't it? Isn't that his name? Played by Frank Sinatra in one of his better performances. Um, yeah. And I think she's the love interest in that. And is he also a card dealer as well as a drummer? But because of his his heroin addiction, he can't quite get his drumming action back. It's a very, yeah, that's the man with the golden arm. That's one that's worth checking out. A black and white directed by Otto Preminger. 
um, pretty tough, uncompromising, uh, uncompromising director who had plenty of rows with his cast. Was it Robert Mitchum who punched him? Um, he was, I think, he was quite a bullying, um, controlling director. Uh, what's the word? There's a word I'm trying to think of. Emigre, one of those guys who came out of. Uh, wartime Germany escaped during the war um, again I've referred to I've referred to others of those directors Fritz Lang is another one um, and they brought a lot of their their baggage and their history and their obsessions which I mean what else is what else is anyone going to do what else is an artist going to do Hitchcock though Hitchcock so the psychosexual psychosexual and probably there is no other movie in the Hitchcock oeuvre. Oeuvre. Let's keep with the French. <laughs> there's, there's probably no other movie in Hitchcock's uh, oeuvre, his, his catalogue, um, that captures the psychosexual and the, 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 the obsession of, of warped love than Vertigo. Like Vertigo is the apex, I think, of this idea in Hitchcock's filmography. And if you haven't seen Vertigo, uh, I heartily recommend it. It is trippy. It is disturbing. It is unnerving. It is visually one of Hitchcock's most striking movies. It has a great, great James Stewart performance at the heart of it. It's also a bit of a great San Francisco movie, if you like that city. But quite simply, and the, the way Hitchcock described it, and you know, for a movie that is genuinely confusing and slippery and elusive, um, and there's a reason for all of that, Hitchcock described it very simply. Man finds girl. Man loses girl. Man finds girl again. Man loses girl again. That was Hitchcock's pithy uh, synopsis of what the movie is about. The man in question is James Stewart. He is, uh, is he a private detective or a retired police officer. And he is hired by a friend to follow the friend's wife, who the friend thinks has suicidal tendencies and has been acting strangely. The wife, the girl, is Kim Novak. And... James Stewart's character, Scotty, who has vertigo. Um, there's a very dramatic opening sequence in Vertigo uh, where a colleague loses his life partly because of James Stewart's vertigo and inability to keep his head at heights. Uh, but James Stewart becomes obsessed with Kim Novak's character and then she dies and he is tormented with grief. But then, subsequently, he comes across another girl that bears a striking resemblance to the friend's wife. Except now, instead of being blonde, she's a brunette. But he is absolutely taken by her resemblance to this woman who he had become obsessed with. And contrives to form a relationship with this girl. And then, and this is where things get very screwy and creepy and weird basically tries to mould her and style her and remake her into the image 
of the original wife. And it's, yeah. It, and that, and then, of course, you can go, well, if, if that's not misogynistic, I, what else is? It's, it's absolutely blatant objectification. It's all about the physical. It's let me make you into my dead, well, they weren't lovers, but like, you know, I want to recreate you. I want to, you want, to, I want you to be my, my living, um, my, my living love mate, um, brought back from the dead. And in fact, Vertigo is also based on a book, just like Betty Blue. A lot of movies are, no news there, stating the obvious once again on the clear out. Um, based on a French novel called D'entre <laughs> les Morts, which I think translates as From the Dead. D'entre les Morts. So From the Dead. Um, and yeah, and so Vertigo. And of course, there is, there, there's more slippery stuff in Vertigo. There is more slippery stuff. Who is this girl that looks so like the wife? Did the wife actually die was that the wife that scotty actually saw or was it the same girl who's still alive now and she didn't actually die and it was all an elaborate cover-up dun 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 so it's got a lot of that the classic hitchcock tricky convoluted plot as well but the vertigo this is the thing there is the vertigo what does it represent what does it represent and with Hitchcock, and so it's very Freudian. It's all it's all sexual. Vertigo really is is it it's a, it, it it's the fear of consummation. Is it the fear of the sex act? I don't want to go to that high place. I can't rise to the occasion. I can't rise to get the girl. And so one reading would have it that it's all about impotence, about male impotence. And the only way to conquer male impotence is to have absolute control over the girl and make sure no one else can have her. So there's a fear of, I don't want to be outperformed by other men. And so all of the, all of the scenes where Scotty has to come face to face with his vertigo are actually him coming face to face with his fear of the sex act or his fear of being unable to perform and every time he gets higher and higher, he gets dizzier and dizzier and more disturbed and deranged and sickened by the impending climax. Um, and it, there's an extraordinary little clip you can find on YouTube where there's a famous scene in the middle of the movie where Scotty, James Stewart's character, has finally achieved this transformation. And he's convinced this girl, the brunette, to have her hair dyed blonde and he's waiting with great anticipation outside her apartment for her to return and she does and she's wearing the style of the deceased wife and they go into her room and he, he's unhappy straight away he said no no you, you know your hair should be up she used to wear it up don't you shouldn't have your hair down and the girl says look we tried it it doesn't work but he he instinctively reaches out and then pulls it up and then she goes into her bedroom to put her hair up now there's an extraordinary bit of audio you can find on youtube where hitchcock is explaining this to the french director francois truffaut uh, via a translator 
and he says basically well this is this is basically the girl he's got her to come to bed but she with the hair down he says that's like the girl coming to bed but refusing to take her knickers off this is Hitchcock's word these are Hitchcock's words and so when she goes into the bedroom and puts her hair up and returns that's her returning with her knickers down ready for action and it's in the in the in that scene in the movie it's a darkened room and there's a vivid use of green there's a green glow that frames her initially and then when she goes into the bedroom James Stewart goes where she was and you know he almost he kneels down or squats down it's almost like he's genuflecting before consummation um and there's in this is famously vertigo uses intense shades of green and red in its color scheme and people have tried to analyze what these things mean um some say it represents deceit the green is deceit that the red is love um that the green is death um red could be sex of course for me when i see the green i'm like it's the it's the the sickening mind it's the sickened mind it's the diseased mind and it's the diseased perception of of james stewart um as he's trying to control this young woman and turn her into someone who's dead uh hitchcock in that same bit of audio says what's really happening there metaphorically is the act of necrophilia having sex with a dead person but it's only when that girl comes out of the room with her hair up that the james stewart character can actually achieve an erection Uh, again hitchcock's words um so again the psychosexual it's absolutely it's it's a mental mental crazy movie and really i think what's what's elevated it over the years or what's led to its reappraisal is that it is these it's these themes it's these tones it's the the color palette it's the lighting design uh, and that design was greatly influenced by Saul Bass who primarily is famous for his title sequences and his movie poster designs um and he did do he did those for Hitchcock North by Northwest famously he did them for Vertigo uh he designed the original poster for The Shining uh if you look at a series like Mad Men those designs would have been very influenced by Saul Bass I think he also did the design uh, the title sequence for Anatomy of a Murder um another great thriller from around uh, the same time um but he was very responsible for these this color palette that was used in the movie the the deep reds uh the red light the green light red dresses green dresses um and uh, yeah there's a famous scene in a restaurant where kim novak we first meet her and she has that hair tied back she's wearing a lovely green dress but the the wallpaper in this expensive looking restaurant is a kind of a deep red with floral print and so flowers feature as a motif as well um, and there's a famous nightmare sequence in the movie which uses animation which was you know quite unusual in a live action suspense movie 
um, but it's flower petals dissolving um, and again worth checking out even if you're just going to go and be cheeky and look at do it the lazy way do it the cheats way don't cheat just watch the bloody movie you can go and watch these clips on youtube no problem um but they're really really it's just so well worth checking out um and i found myself wondering i was looking at one of those scenes myself that love scene in that room there's a neon sign outside the window which is throwing off that green light and at different points different letters are indicated um and p was one of the one of the letters and before i'd heard um hitchcock talking about erections and um impotence or seeing that reading i thought well is is the p for is it for penis is it for penetration and then at a certain point you see mp and it's like is that is it male potency again you know this is what you can do when you start like analyzing these movies there's so many and like vertigo is a movie that offers up so many interpretations uh and as i say it was the the tone and the atmosphere and the palette and the sophistication and the layering of meaning that was going on that I think has ultimately led to its reappraisal because it wasn't that well loved when it first came out in 1958 and critics were bemused and baffled and uninterested and just thought it just doesn't make any sense. Um, and this is, I think I saw one quote that said, this is a, a Hitchcock and Bull story, which is quite cute. Um so yeah so anyway there you go there's two movies right betty blue and vertigo and sure if you haven't seen betty blue it's i think it's worth seeing just to go okay this was 1986 and what am i looking at what like what 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 version of france am i looking at it's still quite a stylish looking movie it's still a beautifully uh staged movie in in many moments um and that central relationship um, is ultimately, I think, quite endearing, um, thanks to the, the strength of the lead performances. And as I say, there's a lot of comedy in it as well. Um, Vertigo, you've just heard me sing its praises and give a bit of a, a breakdown of, of, the, of what it might represent and I've explained what Hitchcock said about it, certainly in that one of those key scenes. And again, I found I found myself going, okay, so what was the connection? What 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 planted this in my head this week? Now the vertigo was just a coincidence. I think that was just serendipity that uh, Anne Marie came along and mentioned how crap <laughs> how crap she and Mark thought it was. And yeah, I continually name them because this is what's known as naming and shaming. Go and rewatch that movie. Go and reappraise it yourselves, guys. It's just a banger. It's fantastic. I love it. Um, so that was just serendipity. Now, the Betty Blue thing. This is where I'm going to make my tenuous connection. <laughs> so, as I said, Betty Blue, which I haven't thought, thought about, spoken about, or watched in years. I'm not even sure if I've, I'd seen it since the first time I'd seen it until a couple of nights ago. Um, it came in my head when I was taking down the chimney. 
<laughs> the next movie that came into my life in this little time frame was Vertigo. What did I say Vertigo was about? One reading is it's about fear of sex, fear of consummation. One reading is it's about male impotence. And, you know, it's about control. It's about the loss of control. It's about losing someone you love. All of these things. And so I was just mulling it over there today, trying to trying to find the connective tissue. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so this chimney, this chimney that I'm taking down, and I'll be back on that job tomorrow to... Uh, to begin working on the outside of the chimney. I'm actually going to be working on the chimney stack outside the house on the roof, taking it down brick by brick. I'm going to go to the very top. The chimney is a phallic symbol. The chimney is hot. (laughs) The chimney is hard and it's hard to take down. But I'm there taking it down brick by brick. So what's going on? Um, and okay, I'm you know I'm amusing myself here, guys. So you know don't 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 anyone jump to any mad conclusions or project too much uh, uh, into my own personal narrative. But I'm like, okay, so is this is this a fear? Am I am I living out a fear of impotence? Am I living out some fear of the sex act? Uh, am I? Uh, am I taking apart my own sexuality, my own sexual potency, brick by brick? When this chimney is fully down, am I going to <laughs> am I going to undergo some some crisis of masculinity? I don't know. I don't know. It's. Um, it's actually not very Hitchcockian. It's quite mundane and banal. Uh, we're talking about manual, manual labor here. Um, but yeah, that's what um, that's what came in my head. And so on. But again, we're we're yeah, we're, we're 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 in Freudian territory here, where we're talking about the subconscious. And so is is this what suggested Betty Blue to me earlier this week? the dismantling of the phallic symbol or I don't know I I mean there's so many there's so many crazy ludicrous ridiculous ways you could take this and I mean I'm I'm being facetious because I couldn't I can't take any of I can't take any of this stuff seriously but and it shouldn't be taken seriously for God's sake Uh, but you know I did to, to take it back to the movies, um, we'll, leave, we'll leave my dismantled chimney alone for the moment, thanks. Um, but to go back to the movies for a second, I did find myself trying to, trying to just think about, and this was the other point I didn't get to make about Betty Blue, and the idea of, you know, of misogyny, because I was trying to think, if 
so so generally speaking, I, I found myself just reflecting on depictions of 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 mad women and mad sexualized women in movies, and of course because of of censorship, because of the the mores, uh, the social mores of the time, because of what could and couldn't be shown on camera. We're talking about you know movies from the seventies on that became more sexually explicit and more sexually frank and certainly even though I said watching Betty Blue as a younger man my one of my first reactions was like one of my first reactions was this is not we're not in Hollywood anymore but of course there would have been movies um, there would have been movies in as part of the, the Hollywood new wave in the 70s that would have maybe strayed into this territory now I've never seen it and it's on my list. Um, John Cassavetes, uh, what's it called? Is it is it woman on the verge of a is a woman on the verge of a breakdown? I'm gonna I'm gonna be cheeky and just quickly quickly look it up here while I'm talking. Um, and that's Gina Rowlands, isn't it? Who was his wife? And isn't Peter Falk in that as a bit of a maybe not such a nice husband and she's going through something um let me just see if i can get that up here i'll just again if you're um if oh come on guys help me out john casa vitis there we go let's see john casavetes who of course was an actor as well as a great kind of indie director um let me just find his filmography here i think one of his two of his most famous movies as an actor were probably the dirty dozen and rosemary's baby um rosemary's baby of course with uh sorry with mia farrow uh a woman under the influence that's the movie i was thinking of 1974 um yeah, yeah, Gina Rollins, Peter Falk, exactly. And yeah, again, mental illness of wife and mother, Mabel, who's loved by her husband, Nick, but it's placing a strain on the marriage. I've never seen it, but it is considered uh, a key text um, in American independent film, uh, in serious uh in terms of serious dramatic films about about women's issues about relationships and yeah it's 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 just one of one of those movies that i've never got around to watching um but one that comes to mind talking about what we're talking about today um so yeah i mean another later movie of course uh around the same time as uh Sorry, around the same time as, sorry, as he knocks the microphone, around the same time as Betty Blue was Fatal Attraction, um, which was, um, what year was that? I spoke about Fatal Attraction not too long ago, didn't I? Um, 1987, a year later. And of course, Fatal Attraction gave us one of the all-time great female villains and female problematic 
characters uh, in Glenn Close's Alex, who has this extramarital affair with Michael Douglas. Uh, she's single, he's not. So he's the cheat. But they have this night of wild passion um, while Michael Douglas's wife and daughter are away out of the city and Glenn Close's character subsequently becomes in fact it's a weekend of passion and she becomes obsessed with Michael Douglas and it becomes a very um, a very extreme uh, thriller um, and you could watch that movie uh, I defy you to tell me that Glenn Close is not a strong and compelling uh, sorry that Glenn Close's character like Glenn Close's portrayal of that character doesn't give you a strong and compelling female character but see this is the problem a lot of a lot of the misogyny maybe comes from the reading how do we read the text how do we consume that narrative what do we walk away with and you walk away from that movie one could walk away from that movie and maybe people did at the time walk away from that movie going holy hell again another psycho woman and no one's really too critical of is it Nick is that his character the Michael Douglas character uh, who he was the one who lapsed he was the one who was unfaithful and again you don't have to watch films with this big moral compass. Is that why you watch? Do you watch? Is that why you watch watch movies to get your your morality checked? Um, I'm, I mean, sometimes movies can tap into that. Sometimes movies can be illustrative. Sometimes they can be provocative. But sometimes they're merely there to entertain, and sometimes they're merely there to be provocative in an entertaining way to be thrilling in an entertaining way to be titillating in an entertaining way David Thompson as I've mentioned before the great English film critic he is he absolutely leans into the idea that movies and cinemas movie houses make voyeurs of us all and that we're all we're all in you know we're all complicit in a certain pervy voyeurism now I don't know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe you know, do you want to throw that into gendered terms? Ah, oh, typical men, you know, the male gaze. Listen, I defy you if you're a woman. I defy you to tell me that you don't also look, that you can't also be a voyeur, that cinema is about showing us often an awful lot of the time cinema is about showing us beautiful people cinema is about showing us sex in many different forms that form is movement that form is 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 passion that form is music and sometimes it is literally sex yes of course uh but that form is design that form is lighting that form is Let's argue uh, Quentin Tarantino, for example. You don't watch Quentin Tarantino's movies for sex scenes. Uh, <laughs> you're going to be very disappointed or disturbed if you do. But 
Quentin Tarantino. How about this for an argument? Quentin Tarantino's dialogue is the sex in Tarantino movies. Quentin Tarantino's staging of certain scenes, his ability to capture something so kinetically cool and striking that you almost salivate as you consume it, uh, consume the visual spectacle. That is sex in Quentin Tarantino movies. So this is part of the dynamic of watching. This is part of the dynamic of being invited, of being invited to take part and saying, yes, I want to take part. So you watch Betty Blue, you watch Vertigo, you watch something like Fatal Attraction and you go, I'm going on the journey. I'm going on the journey. You've allowed me to bear witness. You're bringing me into these people's beds, into their bedrooms. You're bringing me into their showers. You're bringing me into their derangement. You're bringing me into their lust. You're bringing me into their obsession. You're bringing me into their degradation. You're bringing me into their inability to stay in control. You're bringing me into their their, their messiness. You're bringing me into their volatility, their danger, their mutual destruction. You're making me complicit with Scotty, James Stewart, because we're being invited to 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 look at Kim Novak in that way. We're being invited to look, to stare at her face. One of the first things we see in the opening credits of Vertigo is a woman's mouth with lipstick on it. And again, the Freudian reading is the lipsticked mouth is meant to be evocative of female genitals. Now, again, Hitchcock, <laughs> do you think that's an accident? Do you think that's an accident? The opening credits move from the mouth to the eyes and the eyes are looking, staring straight ahead at first and then they're looking side to side and then they widen in fear and then I think it starts in black and white and but then when they go to fear it's washed in red light. So what's red light? Red light is blood, red light is danger, red light is sex, desire, all of these things. So we're playing with powerful images, powerful stimuli and you know, if you haven't realised by now, this is part of the reason why I love movies and why I come back to them and why I won't hesitate to watch uh, a movie again and again and again uh, precisely because it stimulates these kinds of conversations that I'm having with myself. <laughs> and by the way, if throughout this episode you've heard a bell in the background, that's because Ruby, the marketing assistant, the lovely Ruby, the kitten, well, she's a year old now, so I don't know if she's still a kitten. Has been sleeping or trying to sleep on the uh, the windowsill behind me. So, uh, so there you go. Now, maybe that's where maybe that's where we should leave it. Uh, I'm not sure if there was a uh, a concluding point to be made. Um, maybe I'll, I'll just reiterate the that idea of if there is a misogynistic take a misogynistic reading that can be put on these movies when women are depicted this way 
um, explicitly sexual, but also emotionally very unstable to the point of violence, self-harm, attempted murder sometimes. Um, If we take that reading as something that's misogynistic, that's highly reductive, that reduces, oh, well, if she's highly sexual, she's probably emotionally unhinged. I reject that. As the individual, as the individual spectator, as the consumer, I reject that reading. If you want to take that reading, best of luck to you. But you haven't engaged your brain. Uh, now, the one thing I was going to say, which I, the, the, point, the point I did actually, sorry, there was a point I wanted to make. I was watching Betty Blue like the other night and I was trying to think, well, what if a woman is watching this? And if you're a woman, you're going, oh my God. Are we, are, is this where we are? Is this, are we still, is, is this... Is this what we are? Is this what we're being presented with, again and again and again? Now, I can switch my brain and go, okay, I can see that, but I don't know. I don't know. It's, I mean, I suppose the the the, the question is: Is that the ongoing representation of women in in film and in other aspects of life? Um, and certainly other aspects of popular culture. I mean, I've spoken about this before. Um, objectification, the presentation of the female form, the sexualized female form. Um, it's pretty relentless at times, but I don't know. I think, and, and don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of the power of the messaging, but I do think that there are other ways and other opportunities um, and other images out there in terms of representation and female representation and representation of female identity and agency that are not merely caught up in the paradigm of, of sexuality and sexual desirability. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I wrote a short story a couple of years ago and it was simply a story about a woman who was dealing with the grief of of failing to hold on to a pregnancy. And it was trying to get into her internal world and give expression to the full depth of her grief, of her sadness, of her anger, of her sense of futility. Um, I think it was quite effective myself. Um, but I did have one friend a female friend respond to it and go you know not all women are like that and she was saying like I don't I didn't feel that way about not having kids um and I was like okay fine fair enough but I also was like I'm not for a millisecond suggesting that all women are like this it's one character in one little story that I concocted in my little brain and produced um, because I was interested in exploring that one character's experience and I chose to present it that way. Um, so I often view characters, male, female, or otherwise, whatever, um, that way. Take the individual story. It doesn't necessarily... Um, it doesn't at all often represent the whole. It's one part. It's one individual's experience. And 
I think that's a that's a bit of a that's relevant like there's there's an applicability there to 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 identity politics and the culture wars and cancel culture and woke thinking uh nowadays where where we we take everything that's representative of the whole and blow it up and make it the absolute truth for the absolute experience of all and it is and I've been consistent on this. It's colossally stupid, unthinking, unnuanced, unreflective, and lazy in the extreme um, to not go, well, okay, that might be your experience, and I'm not for a second going to invalidate your experience. But there's something wrong where the individual or certain individuals feel that their experience needs to be the representative experience and that everyone has to make a shape to accommodate that as the new orthodoxy. That's um, that's no good and that is not going to help us. Uh, we need... <coughs> excuse me. I found a quote. I found a quote just earlier today. Uh, let me quickly dig it out. And that's what I'm going to conclude with um, in today's episode. It's been so nice to be speaking. There's Ruby having a yawn. The quote was, doink, doink, doink. The greatest threat to freedom is the absence of criticism. And that is a quote from, I believe it would be pronounced, Vole or Vol Soyinka, playwright, poet, Nobel laureate, born... 1934 uh, still alive and doing well evidently so the greatest threat to freedom is the absence of criticism yeah boom we must retain our critical thinking we must retain our critical voices and all you've been listening to is one guy's critical voice even talking about those two movies it's not the last word it's just my word take it or leave it okay Thank you so much for listening. Um, if you've enjoyed what you've heard and you got something out of it and you stop for a millisecond and think, could I put a price on this experience? You can. You can do just that. You can become a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the clear out where you could become a regular contributor of a very small amount of money to this show to help keep it going and i would be enormously grateful for that i'm talking four five euros a month maybe kitten get away from my ankles um you could also use the supporter link which you'll find um wherever wherever you're listening to this podcast and with the supporter link you can make a one-time donation of any amount as large as you want (laughs) to support the show or the tell as i like to call it and that would be that would be brilliant and if you don't have the money or you can't be arsed don't worry about it i listen to loads of podcasts for free it's great but some i pay for um so there you go that's it that's my appeal for your support otherwise throw me some love on social media facebook youtube instagram you can find me at the clear out podcast twitter the clear out too 
you can email me at clearoutlive at gmail.com and I would welcome all contributions, comments, responses, reactions. It's all good. It's all part of the experience. It's all part of building this thing. Uh, so yeah, great stuff. Listen, thanks again for any of you who reached out with feedback for the Ashleen Cregan episodes, the Pebble Girl. Really appreciate some of that feedback I've received. Uh, there will be more interviews coming. Um, my lovely, 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 lovely wife will come on the show at some point soon to talk about music therapy and her music and music, her music career and what music means to her and her music therapy business, which is up and running. Uh, I'm also going to have on the show in the near future the artist and sculptor and creative man, Mr. Alan Clark. So lots of cool things coming up and I, uh, I look forward to sharing them with you. Okay, mind yourselves. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. Go and watch Vertigo. Go and watch Betty Blue. See what you think. Let me know. Okay, talk to you soon. Bye. Inside.